You're listening to the Editorial Intelligence special broadcast from the Names Not Numbers Symposium. More information on namesnotnumbers.com. Hands up who's already read the papers. Hands up who's looked up some news on some form of electronic something. Interesting. Okay. Well, we've had the hard copy papers. I think it's fair to say the local news agent hasn't probably had an order for every single newspaper five times over in, as a matter of regularity. I'm here with an expert panel of uh, journalists and a media savvy queen. Uh, I'm just going to introduce them by name because they're in the bios. They are all uh, informationists of some kind or another um, and a very good mix. We have Di Burton. We have David Rowan, we have Caroline Daniel, we have Ian Martin. Ian, Ian is the only one on the panel who's actually got a piece in the papers today in the, in the Telegraph. Um, we're going to do a mix of things. We're going to have each person pick a story and we'll chew it over. But also we're going to do a little bit of um, what those of us, in fact, let's face it, nearly all of us old enough to remember play school remember us through the round window, which is how is it all put together, how does it work? We'll have a little bit of demystifying. And I'm going to start with the digital tech guru because David's reaction when presented with this pile of uh, dead trees was quite interesting. So, David, what was tell us about your challenge? Well, I've gone over to the other side because when I used to edit a newspaper and edit comment pages, I read everything. I spent three hours on a Sunday plowing through things and putting them out. And I haven't read a newspaper probably for two, two and a half years. I read links to things in the news, and I'm getting my news from 250 people on Twitter who curate it for me. So it was a really quite scary prospect and quite depressing because the proportion of fact to weight was extraordinarily low. And I learned a lot about Cheryl Cole's green dress and... You know, X-Factor judge to Lisa Bedding, Towie Hunk, Mark, and Christina Hendricks is a natural blonde. But there wasn't actually much there that would move the news agenda along. Um, there were a few trends, but nothing significant. And what's quite interesting is the online world, which is buzzing and 24-7 and is actually quite exciting, is not reflected in the offline world. So um, when, they're, when they're covering online stories... It's always in a slightly distorted way. So the biggest thing that happened online last week was there was a viral video called Coney 2012. And anybody here who has a child will be aware of it because it was um, created by this American nonprofit called Invisible Children about the Ugandan warlord Joseph Coney who abducts children. It's a 30-minute video. And it was passed along by children. And it's been seen 71 million times in the last few days. And I only found one reference. Is this the one where you can pay 20 quid for a pack of stickers? Because my son was lobbying me for that one. Yeah, it's, okay. it's trying to We've get people to campaign. And the only reference has been in a, a, a piece in The Observer. And just, when, well, just before we get into the detail on that story, I did want to ask one thing, which is, do you think we, we don't value the news bit of newspapers anymore because we think, oh, I bet something more newsy's happened since that was printed? There's been a loss of confidence and also a loss of investment in the serious investigative journalism. So um, I think a lot of newspapers have cut headcount and cut what they're paying for freelance tips and so on. Um, and there's also an awareness that, well, it's going to be out there already. People have read it online, so we can only add comment. And I think that's a false economy. I think you have to 
originate new material, you have to do that deep investigation to tell people something new. Caroline, you're an, a, a, an executive as the uh, editor of Weekend FT. How, how skewed are those inside the media bubble in the sense that you do read everything, but the punter, the consumer, even the ones that are actually still buying newspapers, they don't. They read the FT or they read the Telegraph. So how much balance are you giving or getting? You know, we, we've read all of them today, but how many people in the country are doing that? Virtually none. I would say virtually none, but I would say virtually none within the Financial Times. I mean, we all read, most of us read in silos. So, you know, the head of the Sainsbury's will read sort of retail-type stories which are prepared for him. People within the FT will read all the tech stories first. We label our stories around certain themes. So I don't think it's that surprising. I mean, I don't read... There are things I don't have to read. I don't have to read Martin Wolf feeling gloomy every single day on Greek apocalypse, but I do have to read a lot more on Weekend FT stuff. When I was running the comment pages, then you read all the other comment pages, but I didn't read The Sun. So it's just everyone reads in silos. And so everyone's opinions are formed in silos. Let's start with actual stories. Ian, what have you got? Yeah, uh, well, the first thing is, um, is looking ahead to the budget, really. And anyone who was uh, there last night for Steve Richards fantastic um, tour de force. Um, oh. Actually, I thought it was just going to be Steve playing records. But it was much better than that. Um, anyone who listened to that last night will know that the theatre of politics is so important. And uh, so it is with this budget. But something really interesting is happening to the way that newspapers report um, politics or forced to report politics because the pre-budget negotiations are conducted in, in, in public. You know. So you've, you, there used to be a budget purder uh, and journalists desperately tried to um, find out what was going on and usually failed. But now, as a journalist, you can't move for uh, special advisors briefing you on what the Liberal Democrats are demanding next and how they're going to, going to hold, um, hold the coalition to ransom. So you've got... You know, you've got a fantastic, um, uh, fantastically bitchy page two lead in the Mail on Sunday. Tories blistering attack on inert scheming cable. I don't, inert, is, is that an insult? But, um, and also, I mean, a very a nice piece from James Forsyth in the Mail on Sunday in which he explains some of the wiring behind how this is happening and how these negotiations are going on. And that essentially this new tycoon tax, which is... Clegg's latest tax after the mansion tax, how it was cooked up over, um, over a few uh, whiskies uh, just a few days ago, actually, in, um, inside the cabinet office with, with Richard Reeves, who's Clegg's chief of staff, having a drink with Danny Alexander and thinking, we're getting somewhere in this mansion tax, we're terrifying the Tories, let's think of another tax. That, um, that inside the wiring thing is interesting, because don't you think that is a constant, that you do want the inside story or the valid opinion. With the greatest of respect to my friends from television or radio, newspapers are where you get that. You get it to an extent yeah. uh, uh, in new media, something like Guido Fawkes, but you st if, you if you really want to know what, what is in happening the inside the government, yeah. what's happening in the room, you're going to get it from reading uh, James Forsyth in the Mail on Sunday or Sunday Times or the Sunday Telegraph. So the headline on the pre-budget is what? what? Is it all been... Um, seeped, as Steve Richards said. The headline is that, the headline is that they're, they're at war in a very public way. 
Um, and I th what I think it shows is it shows the limits of coalition government. I think lots of people were excited by the idea of coalition in those glorious days in the, in the Rose Garden when Nick and, um, and, and Dave pledged themselves to each other. But only two years later, I, I, I get a sense that people think it's not a particularly coherent grown-up way to run a government. I mean, it's, this, is, this is government being run by a series of trades on a daily basis, which we read about in the, in the papers every day. Okay, so... Uh, not this second, but John, I hear you. I hear you. Uh, I'm just invoking Mrs. Moneypenny again. No. <laughs> Hold that thought. Die. what's your... What were you drawn to as your first big story of the day? Well, I was thinking about Friday night when Emily... Is Emily in the room? Emily Kesriel. She, she asked us what the definitions of sustainable, sustainability and durability were. And I think the panel gave seven different answers and she was incensed. So I went to the OED and I looked it up. And I looked for some stories around uh, sustainability and durability. Uh, sustainable, able to be maintained at a certain rate or level, able to be upheld or defended. So I looked at women in the boardroom. Now, I am not a feminist, let me say that straight away. Ooh, but this is disgust. a... This... Carry on. This... <laughs> That's what's called burying the lead, isn't it? In news? But I am a... feminist I am a member of the... <laughs> I am a member of the 2% Club, which represents that the top section of women who, who are in the boardroom. And we've got two stories here in the Sunday Times business. FTSE giants slammed door on women executives. Um, in the last year, women in senior executive positions have fell by 2%. This is despite Lord Davis of Abbasoc report. Um, 17 of the top FTSE 100 have no women at all in the boardroom. Norway has gone for quotas. Now, Julie and I are opposed on this. I said, boys... We're tired of waiting, quite frankly. I think we should start looking at quotas. You see, that is a very feminist line, you see. That's what's well, all hang on a moment, hang on a moment. It. Let's see where it all starts. The glass ceiling starts at 30. It, apparently, the pipeline is very poor. That from mid-management to senior management, men are dominating. So three pieces of... Three issues we have here. It's about biology. Women have babies. We drop out of our career, and when we come back, we are very seldom at the same level. We come back at a fractional post, and we always have a less of a salary. Number two, men recruiting their own image. Loads of uh, evidence of that, chairman in particular. And the advice that they're giving us is girls get an MBA, which will um, help you. So I think changing behaviors, this is not sustainable. We cannot carry on. Why not legislate now and force the change of behaviour? Okay, so you have uh, taken from... You see, I would, have, I would have taken a different thing, which is I would have majored on the um, Eleanor Mills comment piece in the Sunday Times that slightly agrees with my position on quotas, which is let's not impose them. But... How long can we wait, Julia? We'll be waiting for another share, 50 God. years. <laughs> let's segue into Caroline's story... Well, What's your story? This is going from women in the boardroom to women in the bedroom. Um, this is about uh, Dominique Strauss-Kahn's wife has given her first interview um, ahead of the election. She's uh, standing by her man and uh, talks about her love of uh, her husband. And it's just been an amazing story. I mean, here's a central figure who could have been the next French president, arguably, and instead is facing a civil, another civil trial next week and uh, has come out with the best or most surprising defence ever about whether he did or didn't sleep with prostitutes at a uh, party. Of women were provided by a French businessman. 
and he said, when a woman's naked, you can't tell if she's a prostitute. Um, <laughs> this, this is really interesting French. Really, yeah, these were actually his words. Because he was arguing... It's an observation. <laughs> someone's very embarrassed in the third row. <laughs> what? So it's a, it, said it. Yes. <laughs> All right, settle down. It's so, only 9.15. No, I think this is getting more exciting now. So, uh, so it's actually a great story because it's also about how the French press has completely changed its relationship with the reporting on right. the secret loves and secret lives of French politicians. We're seeing that in Europe quite in, in an interesting way. We've seen this in Germany recently as well. Christian Wolff, Christian Wolf, who was the, pre the uh, German president, um, recently had a big falling out with the main German newspaper there over a scandal in which he, a bit like the Peter Manton scandal, he'd borrowed some money from a wealthy businessman and he didn't want it to be reported. And he rang up the, build, the, the, the newspaper, The Build, and he said, um, I'm going to go to war on you if you print this. And the relationship between German politicians and the media had been incredibly cozy. So, for example, even at the Financial Times, they are allowed, politicians are allowed to censor on-the-record interviews after they've done them. They're allowed to come back, which is an amazing. Um, but there is an element, I think, of... Uh, acute management around this interview with um, Mrs. Strauss-Kahn because every single media outlet would have wanted that interview. What were the conditions on which she agreed to give it? Because it really does start pretty much with, isn't she fragrant and gorgeous and lovely? Yeah, it talks about her it's dazzling hardly... smile, her yeah. tight black trousers, her svelte, her, her svelte figure, a surprisingly svelte figure for a woman of 63. Um, Naked or otherwise. Oh, oh and, her second, and the third paragraph is her critics, most of them women, are baffled by the fluffy, carefree demeanour and her decision to leave the... Uh, not to leave Le Perve as a New York... <laughs> as, a, as a New York tableau call it. So, and actually, there is absolutely... Oh, and she's also wrinkle-free. Um, and she speaks huskily. So, I mean... Sorry, it's, it's a, actually, it's a rubbish interview. But, I have doesn't, to, it doesn't. but doesn't that conjure up the image of sort of frantic paddling below the surface? Because the whole point, isn't it, Ian, of the Sunday papers is that it's supposed to be leisurely and pique your interest and be a little bit titillating. But actually, the efforts to get those stories are probably more competitive, aren't they? I mean, Sorry, can I just... Yes. One more line from this interview. This is the next headline on page two. The sexy French Oprah, that must be her, who gave it all up for the rutting chimpanzee. Oh, good one. <laughs> Sorry. Yes, I, I mean, Ian, I, I, how, I, Ian, how fraught is it in a newsroom on a Saturday, basically, in a conference before the Sunday papers? Well, actually, not very traditionally on a, on a, on a Sunday newspaper. Most of mostly agonising is done on a Thursday and a Friday. Right. Having works in Sunday papers for, uh, for a long time. Saturday, uh, Sunday newspapers are notoriously not that good when live news happens on a, uh, happens on a Saturday. Most of the work is the grind of production of ripping pages up, redesigning them, um, moving pages around, um, looking for the page one picture. When is the and day then, the editor worry. shouts and screams and says, get me my effing good story that we all Having worked in, in the Daily life. Mail, that's, that's kind of every hour, really. <laughs> <laughs> OK. David, give us some more stories. Um, well, I thought about what Mark Wolpert was saying the other day about how we um, need to educate people to be science literate. 
And then I looked at the Sunday Times and had this horrible, sad feeling as I read stories like, found genes that make Brits free thinkers. And <laughs> apparently, um, there's a new scientific finding which Mark didn't mention, that the traits of rugged British individualism compared with Chinese conformity may be rooted in genetic differences between the races. And it's full of those kind of, such findings will need further confirmation and, if confirmed, weasel words. Um, but it gives them, you know, a nice little cartoon with sperm running for eggs and stuff. And it just makes me think that we should probably get the Wellcome Trust to fund a little journalism school somewhere in Wapping to get people understanding this. And the other thing I have is a warning for anybody who's on Facebook, because about 38% of the stories in the news this morning are all about things that have happened to people's Facebook pages. And when, when you find three things, you know you've got a trend. Um, so a policeman involved in the... Madeleine McCann Chase is being probed for allegedly sending filthy photos to a woman via his Facebook page. Spies have used Facebook to steal NATO chief's details. So um, somebody set up a face Facebook account for um, a senior naval official and got some stuff. And now the police are also in on it. So we don't trust the police for dealing with tabloid hacks anyway. Now they're hacking into Facebook pages for people campaigning for an inquest into... David Kelly. So I think the only thing we can conclude is shut your Facebook pages and you'll be out of the papers. Isn't it also the case, though, that you know, the microphone is always on if you're using Facebook or Twitter because there now never is a, a day when a paper doesn't have a story of something someone said or done? It's very cheap journalism, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Die. Total contrast to David's stories. Uh, you know, it's the point that being worthy is not newsworthy. Um, Mark alluded to habitat destructions in one of his talks, and I'm an iOS reader, and they always carry environmental stories. So again, I've picked up that sustainability piece, a hard, dry future for the planet, um, way down only on page 39. Of which paper, sorry? Independent on Sunday. Um, basically, demand for water is expected to increase by 55% over the next four decades. There's going to be 1.4 billion people. It's a projected number of people without basic access to sanitation. And this is all as a result of rapid urbanization, you know, the overpopulation piece, climate change, altering the global economy. And what are we doing about it? We're plundering our aquifers. We're rerouting rivers. Um, we're basically, again, you know, plundering the planet. Where's it going to stop? So we take it into uh, what does it mean for you and me? And the Observer's got a little, lovely little... Magazine on how to garden in a drought. So, how is this going to affect your garden? Well, stop using hanging baskets, grow perennials, there's a whole raft of what is how it's going to affect us. But in the long term, you know, the UN is debating next week this World Water Forum on what, what are we going to do about these really important issues rather than maybe some of the stuff that David's just spoken about. Okay, so a quick canter through and then we'll have some uh, vociferous discussion back on your very strident assertion about the coalition and Di's very strident. Co assertion about uh, quotas but what's your next story i think it's gay marriage gay marriage uh, and there's a there's a fascinating uh, poll in the sunday telegraph um and when you dig down into the detail of the numbers i think it indicates that something very interesting is happening to public opinion on this subject i'm very pro-gay marriage um and uh i, I regard the regard the the church or the churches as um they're behaving like political parties that don't know whether to try and appeal to their core vote or try and, and, tr or try and reach out. But do you support, support or oppose um, 
the move to legalise gay marriage, support 45%, which I don't think is a finding you would have found in uh, this country 10 years ago, certainly not 20 years ago, opposed 36%. And if you dig down into by party, um, because of course the the accusation against Cameron uh, from some core Tories is that this will give him a huge problem with, um, with his uh, traditional uh, Tory vote. 35% um, of Tory voters now support uh, gay marriage. Labour, it's 51%. Lib Dem, it's, uh, it's 58%. By gender, 40% um, of men support gay marriage, but 50% of women. So you're, you're, get, you're, getting, to, you're getting to a point with women voters where it has crossed a threshold of more than 50% and then becomes, I would argue, completely unstoppable as a social, as a social phenomenon. Uh, and I think Cameron will pay a lot of attention to this poll and will study it. Who's done the poll? It's an ICM poll for the Sunday Tell. Um, and I think, it's, uh, I, think he'll, I think he'll take quite a bit of um, heart from it. And the poll is actually another big signature piece of a weekend paper, isn't it? That's the, the polls that you listen to, yeah, politicians I mean, react to. I don't know, David, whether you would agree in the front row, but, I mean, the, the, yeah. the Sunday poll is the thing that course, sets the weather, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, traditionally, yeah. Sunday newspapers tended to be the, the papers that, um, that used polling. I think during general election campaigns, <coughs> that the Daily Telegraph would use Gallup once a week. But, I mean, generally, out of a campaign, they were the... They were the domain of, um, of, of Sunday papers. But generally speaking, the poll is less used around lifestyle than around hard policy. Is that right? I mean, when was the last time FT Weekend did a sort of, you know, handbag poll or something? Not, not recently. In our office? In your office, fair point. But do you commission polls? No. Right. So the front, the front commissions, the, the news commissions. We do very polls. few polls. I mean, I think most polls for sort of lifestyle questions are pretty pointless. Yeah. And probably upset your advertisers. And pollsters. Um, but the leaders, Ian, mm. uh, just finish on that, that. There was, I think, a leader about gay marriage. Do you want to just explain, uh, for those not totally inside the beltway, the difference, in a way, between the leaders and the rest of the... The yes. paper. Yeah, I mean, on a, you asked me what happens on a, on a Saturday in a Sunday newspaper. One of the key moments is when the leader conference happens. Um, the Sunday Telegraph, uh, having chaired it, it's about sort of 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock in the morning. Those who, uh, the, a couple of leader writers, the editor, a couple of other senior members of staff sit down and say, OK, out there in the newsroom, everyone is ripping up pages, rewriting stories, you know, mechanically putting the paper together, what do we think out of the various things on the news list? What do we want to opine on? What do we want to try and set the agenda uh, on? Uh, Sunday Telegraph, uh, paper I write for, takes quite a different interpretation of the poll from, from me uh, and essentially sees gay marriage as a change. I think the headline is, a change too far, too soon for Britain. And it comes on the back of there's a big piece in the Daily Telegraph on Saturday by Charles Moore, who's a bit of, who kind of sets the tone uh, for these things, often, often on the conservative side, and he was anti-gay um, marriage. So it's an interesting division um, in the press. On the Observer, um, a slightly, uh, well, essentially 
quite a lot of hand-wringing about what on earth are we in Afghanistan for. I mean, this is a war that's now gone on twice the length of the, uh, of the Second World War, uh, and are we any closer to winning it, and how do we actually even uh, measure that? Um, the Sun has a, has a leader that I simply don't understand, which is um, about Afghanistan, but is about something called the Rewards for Forces um, sort of card, like a nectar card that should be given to all um, troops uh, or our boys, um, which would give them savings in supermarkets and that sort of thing. So it, I'm possibly being quite sniffy about it, but you could, they would argue that that's a real sort of nitty-gritty story about... Um, about they would, they would argue that that is, that is aimed at the um, wives and husbands of those who are earning not a lot of money yeah. uh, and are fighting in uh, Afghanistan and, um, and losing. In the Sunday Times, the leader is on tax, which we talked about earlier, and essentially, uh, picking up on the theme that I was talking, talking about, uh, saying this is not really a way to run a government, that uh, it's time to stop chucking the China in number 10, and that this... This way, this way of conducting open government is rather unseemly and um, So the confusing. leaders are a sort of s slight form of subliminal code, aren't they? They're the line of the, of the newspaper to its constituencies. Uh, uh, the, the, the political yeah. network the least, leads the, the leaders actually in a slightly... They are definitively, they are the least read part of a newspaper... So but why are they still there? They're read by politicians and right. they're read by other journalists. Okay. Uh, and they're read by some readers And by Stephen Fleming things. of our Daily Digest, very assiduously. Absolutely. Okay. Just before, I want a couple of things from Di and before we take it out. But David, how does Wired choose its stories and what it covers? Does it? Oh, I mean, you've, you've worked in newspapers We're for many years. You've edited a newspaper. We're for our monthly deadlines. Right. So how does that work? What's, um, what's the dynamic with a monthly? So any magazine knows that you're competing with the internet, so you have to do stuff the internet can't do, so you're never going to be first with a story. Um, you have to curate, you have to get stuff that the team is excited about, and then go in depth and then present design and photography. So the brief to the section editors is what is really obsessing you. Don't please me, don't please the advertisers, don't please the PRs. Just give a sense of excitement. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And when you say you can never be first, I mean, you got a huge interview with Reid Hoffman of LinkedIn. That, that kind of is a first. I mean, he it's gave not, his though. interview it's, to Wired, didn't what he? What you have is access to time that the newspapers and the websites don't right. have. So, you know, I spent three days with him. It's 4,000-something words. Um, Long-form journalism, I think, still has a role against the Internet. But it's constantly, what can we do that online for free you can't get? And, Di, a quick question before we open it out to the... The floor. I mean, The Sun on Sunday launched a couple of weeks ago. You've actually had, through Leveson and the whole shebang, a situation where, you know, the, the, the rule for media has been broken, which has never become the story. The media is the story. The press is the story. How, I mean, how many posh handbags are going to be carrying The Sun? How much of a reputational hit has it been? I think if they were, they would be hide it. Right. Um, because it's the sun, because it's the lower end of the market, or yeah. because of the bigger problem uh, probably in Gulf both. News probably, International? Probably both. Right. Um, I certainly wouldn't be seen with that. I'm afraid, you know, that's showing my prejudice. Now, but, why? Uh, because, would you have been seen with the News of the World before no, it closed? No, no, now I that, wouldn't. okay, I would. No. Who would have been seen with the News of the World before it closed? Who would not have been seen with the News of the World before it closed? Okay, so we have to talk morality. Yeah. In a I might have read it, but I wouldn't necessarily be seen with it. But, but something, quite, something quite interesting is, is happening. There's a 
big shift. It's a very different newspaper from the news of the world. If In you, what respect? Well, if you take, David and I were talking about this earlier, if you take the splash, uh, Lampard's, I mean, this is like a, from a headline generator, Lampard's pedo uncle and girl 13. <laughs> now, leave, leave, leave the, leave, put the morality to one side, is, the, is this a story? It's not a story that would have led the news of the world, because it's not... It's really, even if you're interested in celebrity or crime, it's, it's, a, it's a page seven digest for the news of the world. I mean, the news of the world did traditionally, a couple of times a month, have a story that even if we want to be snooty about it, was a big deal, possibly as the result of a buy-up or um, some other way of finding stories. Um, <laughs> and, and it would dominate. Because it has done an extensive survey of new internet lingo that I think can benefit this community here. Um, there's a couple of words they've translated. Um, one of them is nomophobia, which is fear of being unreachable on your palm top or mobile. And, and the other one is potato. One of the net's more amusing acronyms, it stands for people over 30 acting 21. <laughs> oh. I'm not going to ask for the demographic details of our crowd. Please do not. Right, we're going to have some comments, uh, and we're going to start with uh, the newsman, John Snow, as he was first vocally. It was very interesting to hear a newspaper man castigating um, uh, the consequence of a democratic vote, and that is you've got a couple of parties in power who are spatting over the budget, which seems to be completely uplifting instead of the whole of the corner thing with faceless treasury bureaucrats. My fear is they're not spatting as much as they pretend. But, uh, I, I mean, the other thing is that in the, in the coalition, you are at last seeing U-turns. I think a U-turn is probably the most reassuring action any government could ever take. It means they've actually thought about it and thought it wasn't a very good idea. And we've had about 19 U-turns. Most governments have only ever managed to produce three or four. It's a fantastic moment in British politics. The politician at the front would like to say something. Can you bring the microphone down here? The trouble with the coalition is they don't argue enough. Um, I mean, on the budget... The, big deal, you know, I'm, I'm part of the argument. But the, uh, take another issue which was brought up today, which was Afghanistan. Now, if I were inside number 10 now, I would be saying to Cameron, you must assume that people will view every death from now on as a wasted life. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, and who, who is making that argument in Parliament? The Labour Party isn't. Uh, the, 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 that argument should take place between the two components of the coalition. And it won't, John. Whatever you think, it won't happen. So, actually, there should be more arguments within the coalition. I think it's bloody healthy. I spent four or five years uh, as a foreign office minister dealing with coalition governments in Europe. They always fought like cat and dog, did them no harm, uh, actually made democracy better, and we should grow up and learn to live with it. Thank you. Uh, I've got a question for you, Louise, magazine editor, editor of Psychology's magazine. I was rather interested that David's description of how he edits a monthly is to say to his section editors, do what you want to do. No mention of circulation and somebody breathing down your neck. And how do you... I mean, how much you've also edited in newspapers and now in, in I monthlies. I think what David's saying is that he's editing Wired, which is all about instant digital satisfaction and wires are monthly so there's there is a kind of disconnect there isn't isn't there whereas in women's in the women's magazine market 
they're, you know, they've always been monthlies. They've always been glossy, big production monthlies. Um, I mean, I think that we think about the reader. You know, it's pretty straightforward. Because it's not a fashion magazine, you don't have to think about the advertisers to the same extent. There's not a list of people who you're trying to get the names in with, you know, tights by Givenchy or something. That, that doesn't really come into it. You're, you're thinking about... I mean, with psychologies, we feel there are two different kinds of readers and they are different in age. Um, but I think that that's quite doable. It's only marketing people who seem to find, find that a bit a unusual. Mm. Give us another story, Caroline. Um, well, this is a sort of half-good story in the uh, Daily Telegraph, the, the business section. Um, banks hit by new mis-selling uh, scandal. And actually, the mis-selling scandals are is a fantastic story, underreported. I mean, the pension mis-selling mis scandal, um, the banks are supposed to pay out about £8 billion. We're all worrying about the, the budget. But actually, that's £8 billion which will be injected into the British economy. And the speed at which that comes back in should be a much bigger story all over the papers about how quickly a bank's doing this. Um, unfortunately, this story isn't about that. And it's about a new mis-selling mis scandal to do with uh, selling complicated financial products to small businesses. Um, it's to do with um, highly complex interest rate derivatives called... Um, someone was sold, in fact, an asymmetric leveraged collar, which I thought was something to do with Vivian Westwood. Um, but, the, um, but the banks are at it again, and so I think what's a, it's quite a good story, but actually it's again revealing about the, uh, how Sunday papers increasingly having to puff up their business stories. I mean, when I started at the FT 10 years ago, business stories on Sunday papers were fantastically good. You were scared about opening them up, and, and your editor calling up saying, where was it? Now it's pretty rubbish, and this, that, this is a pictures and a great exclusive by The Telegraph, and then they have a pull-out quote to make it seem a bit sexier, saying the mis-selling of interest rate swaps could be big, as big as PPI, which is complete rubbish. It's not going to be £8 billion worth. In fact, there's no evidence in the whole piece to support that. And there's no evidence in the whole piece to say what is the scale of this new mis-selling scandal, which is quite typical of what you see in some of the business stories. And I can see you uh, nodding. They are, and most of the rest of it is pretty paltry fair in the business pages. Do you think we're ever going to see a situation, people talk about newspapers lasting or failing, you know, print is going to exist or it's not, somebody, you know, predicts something with certainty every other day. Are we ever going to see a bit of boldness with maybe a newspaper saying, well, we're not the Financial Times, we're going to drop our business coverage and we're going to ramp up our sports coverage? Are we going to see a... Di, have you got a view on this, that there's going to be, you I know, mean, more segmentation? But it'll all be determined by market forces. You know, if X amount of people are really hung up on sport and don't read business, why actually provide business? It's about knowing your market. And I think with the fragmentation, we could probably see something like that. But where's the proprietor in this? Where's And um, the editors in this? Where's the, to use a word I normally hate, leadership? They're I mean, in it to make everyone's money, sort of doing the same. They're in it to make money. They're not in business to, you know, shuffle money around. So they'll go with the market. But don't you make money by innovating? Yeah, but then the innovation would be doing things like dropping the business pages for sports readership. You know, psychologies absolutely know their market and they, they write accordingly. But there's always innovation in great editing because you are taking the risks, aren't you? You're covering something that someone else hasn't covered yeah. before. But essentially, British Sunday newspapers particularly, but Saturday and Sunday newspapers haven't yet, haven't yet answered your thought about or answered your question because they're still living with the model of the 1980s, which is the newspaper as supermarket. 
uh, an idea invented, an idea, you know, multi-section that could be divided up yeah. amongst the family and passed more, around. More. Um, yeah. I don't think that's happening in the same way around the breakfast table. Um, half the family are probably off doing something else, um, and if it's if it's media, it's it's electronic. Um, and you're right. At some point, there's a there's a crunch, which is that the multi-section newspaper. You can you can see it in the way that, I suppose. On a Monday to Friday, some newspapers have reduced the number of separate sections they have. The Telegraph is the only one with a separate sports section, which 10 years ago, everyone had a separate pull-out thing, The Guardian, um, now doesn't have it every day. Times is sort of folded into the main run. And that's, a, that's just a consequence of, that's just cost, that's just cost and cost saving. In a year's time, are we going to be doing the newspaper review with one or two less titles in front of us, David? Well, I think it's not news to say the economic model is declining. There is innovation. They are finding new markets. People are paying for the FT on the tablet device in new ways. Um, but it's about finding people's attention, and we're distracted by angry birds and every other hit on our time. Um, so, and also there are fewer places selling newspapers. I'm going to just finish by asking you all to say completely instinctively, because I haven't given you any warning, what in the rather frantic early morning browsing sticks in your mind? What, what, would you, what did you learn or be amused by in today's crop that you wouldn't have otherwise seen that you're actually quite glad you, see, you saw? I think at a time like this of lots of uncertainty, loads of anxiety, people are automatically drawn to pictures that are reassuring, support all their prejudices, nostalgia, um, that sort of make them feel a bit okay in this really turbulent world out there. Yeah, that's quite a political answer, died. No, what I mean is what grabbed your eye this morning that you can remember from the breakfast table? I'll come back to you. Good. Um, great FT story. Um, middle-aged prince. There's a picture of Prince Harry presented as a middle-aged prince with a kind of wrinkles and looking like Prince Andrew. Uh, under the headline, Sporty Prince Worth a Thousand Politicians, which is, on, which is actually true because his recent trip to um, um, Jamaica has been a great success. And there was a great photograph, photo montage of him um, looking kind of old, and I like that. Well, I, I, just to give the panel time to think, I like the Madonna story in The Sun, uh, that Madonna talks about what it's like to do the work-life balance. It's hard work as a single mum of four. At times, <laughs> my head feels like... Exploding. I am not a single mum. I'm a m mother and stepmother of five. And my head often feels like it's exploding. I'm so there with Madonna. Ian, <laughs> what, what, took, what picked your... Well, I, I, just, I was just going to say quickly, in defence of newspapers, which I love and have spent my entire career in, I, think, uh, I still think there is um, there's a joy and a serendipity in reading a paper that is an experience, although I love Twitter, um, and that's a wonderful way to aggregate news and jokes and all the rest of it, um, there's, something, there's some, something particular about a newspaper that you, stumble upon, you just stumble on things that you wouldn't otherwise pay attention to. Uh, two things grabbed me this morning. Firstly, in the Sunday Times business section, the brilliant David Smith, uh, must-read uh, column on economics, actually some good news about how the economy is, the private sector is, cre is creating jobs and we should be slightly more optimistic that the underlying figures are 
better than we're told day in, day out. Uh, and next to it, Owen Stelzer saying something similar about the American economy and that the American economy we might actually just be at the point where it is getting lift off. But the thing that really grabbed me, and I think, I mean, where else would you get this other than a newspaper? I wouldn't have stumbled upon it online. Uh, it's from Mandrake, um, the uh, gossip diary in the Sunday Telegraph. Vegas proves unlucky for arrested Duke. Um, the Duke of Manchester, who has been imprisoned twice in Australia, deported from Canada and exposed as a bigamist, has added a new entry to his CV. <laughs> which is, he, essentially, in a Vegas casino, he wrote a check for $3,500, which bounced. Oh, um, now, and I just think there is a, there's a, there's a, a silliness in newspapers and a sense of mischief and uh, daft things that you wouldn't otherwise stumble, up, stumble upon, and I certainly don't, um, online. Any more for any more? I'm thinking of, again, the Royal comes back to my... Actually, you've picked up a Royal story. I picked up the Nostalgia, great PR stunt by the National Farmers Union, campaign for coronation, child, uh, coronation chicken 2012 style. Back to comfort food for us. The Queen's still there as a rock. And there's a lovely campaign going on, Nostalgia, all over again. And David, the, the technologist amongst us, the digital man, you can end with a handheld newspaper story. Okay, so the digital story that jumped out is, um, if you're one of the 400 million people who have seen that video on YouTube, Charlie Bit My Finger, you'll be very excited to know it's being translated by his parents into a global brand. <laughs> hang on, hang on. In the pipeline, a series of children's books with moral messages, such as the importance of not biting. <laughs> an animated TV series, and um, my favourite, in the next few months you'll be able to download an official Charlie Bit My Finger app for the iPhone with interactive features that let you upload a picture of yourself having your finger bitten by Charlie. I think it all comes down to commerce in the end, doesn't it? That was a great early morning kicker. Thank you. Stay where you are, because we're going to go straight into the bright idea. But please, big round for Di, David, Caroline, Ian.